Welcome to Stacy on the Right, the podcast. Hosted here at Family Vision Media. You can find out more at familyvisionmedia.org. And don't forget to rate the podcast. We really need those ratings. Thank you for helping us out. We have today with me Sherilyn Holloway. She's a founder of Pro Black Pro Life. The website is problackprolife.com. Problackprolife.com. Sherilyn, thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. I'm excited. I'm glad you're here because at no point in our history have, except for when Roe v. Wade was passed, have we had such a big <laughs> furor over exactly what the rights of babies are, unborn babies, of women, of the fathers who are often left out of the equation until it's time to pay child support, and then, of course, how that intersects with the black community. So talk to me a little bit about your organization. How did it come to be, and what is its purpose and mission? Yeah, sure. Um, so I um, was running a pregnancy center here in Ohio, and I grew up in Oberlin, Ohio, which is a stop on the Underground Railroad. We have really a rich history in racial justice. And so, you know, I had kind of that background and that thought process and didn't really know much about the pro-life movement uh, within itself. I had made two previous abortion choices when I was younger and the Lord kind of just brought me full circle, turned my um, ashes into beauty and said, you know, this is a part of your story. I really want you to uh, run a pregnancy center. And so I was obedient. I said yes and really started to get involved and learn more and more about what this thing Roe versus Wade was, which, again, I had no idea, had no idea about any of the history, anything. Um, and as I began to kind of dive a little deeper, I found out about the disparities in the Black community that came to abortion. And so I kind of took my knowledge of racial justice issues and data and combined it with the data in the abortion industry. And to me, it was, there was a very, very clear link. And I couldn't understand why it was so hard for people on the left to see the link but they could see everything else, um, racism and everything else, but also the people on the right to not only connect that link, but then connect that to all the other racial injustice that happens as well. And so I, I kind of felt like I was on this island. I started to feel like, am I crazy? Like, am I making this up? And so I just kept doing these deep dives and like, it just kept coming up with the same answer over and over again. Like this is very much connected. And so in 2019, I stepped away from my position at the pregnancy center. I wasn't really sure what the Lord was going to have me do, but I started brainstorming this idea of how do I educate on, like, how do I make this connection for our community, for the United States, for whoever I'm talking to, how can I best make this connection? And I joined a, a pro-life marketing agency. I don't like social media. I didn't want to do a website. Like there was, I had a list of things, Stacey, that I did not want to do. And I would even say that I wasn't going to do. And so I had this great job. I was, you know, I wasn't leading anybody. I wasn't managing anybody. I was just kind of showing up and talking to pregnancy centers about their marketing and, um, you know, to, to get my, uh, my values across, I would tell people, you know, I'm pro-black and I'm pro-life. Like one doesn't negate the other for me. I don't feel like I have to check all these boxes in order to be pro-life. And I don't feel like I have to check all these boxes in order to say that I'm pro-black. And, you know, I am for the advancement of my community. And that is from the womb to the tomb. 
And so my husband made me a T-shirt um, that said pro-black, pro-life. The president of the marketing company came to me and said, hey, when you're ready to do something with that, let me know. And this is 2020, um, about February or so. It was right after the Ahmad Arbery shooting. And I just thought, I don't want to do anything. I just want to show up for work and shut down at six and, you know, <laughs> spend time with my family and let that be that. Well, on uh, May 28th, it was a Saturday after the uh, George Floyd murder, I woke up and the Lord said, the time is now. So I called her. I said, I don't know what this means, but the Lord said, the time is now. And she said, it's music to my ears. God told me when you were ready that I was supposed to help you. Um, and that's where it started. May of 2020, they built my website. They built my social media um, structure. Um, they just put everything that I had on that list that I wasn't going to do, they did. So the Lord really took away any excuse <laughs> that I had. Um, and I said, okay. And the only word I really got was educate, that I was to educate. Um, and so we started a YouTube channel. I started uh, with some real consistent messaging, which I, you know, had learned from my, mar you know, my very short time at the marketing um, agency, how important that consistent messaging was. And it was really to help come alongside the black community and understanding um, you can be pro-life and you don't have to be all these other things. Like, who you see representing us in this space or who you see in this space on TV is, is not who you're actually going to see. Like we're more, they say we're nuanced, but I really don't feel like we're nuanced. I feel like we're normal <laughs> and everyone else in the extreme size are more nuanced. Um, and so what actually ended up happening was in January of 2021, I got um, an email from ABC, um, a producer who wanted to, um, interview me for uh, a, a series they were doing called Soul of a Nation, which was going to highlight the Black experience in America, and they were going to have an episode on faith, and they wanted to cover abortion. And um, I thought it was a joke. I was like, clearly, this is somebody who wants to, like, beat me and kidnap me. Um, but it wasn't. It was real. And on March 16th of 2021, I appeared um, at a very calm Christian Black pro-life woman on uh, this docu-series. And from that point on, I've just been flooded with messages um, from my brothers and sisters in the Black community just saying, you know, thank you for giving us a home. Thank you for giving us a place to process, you know, our feelings and our thoughts. So I'm really excited about that because it sounds to me like it was it was born of a purpose as opposed to, you know, kind of a vanity project or something. And it's actually really hard to do a vanity project connected with abortion because of the subject matter. <laughs> yeah. um, but there are people who seem like yeah. they're talking about it out of a place that's not not one that has the heart for women and babies and um, those who are victimized by it. And so, you know, as we look at what's happening right now, Democrats want to have a conversation about abortion, not because they care about women or there's something new that they've discovered, some new policy aim, something that can bring the nation together. Democrats want to talk about abortion right now because it's better than talking about inflation and shortages of, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, baby formula and all the other things, the gas being five dollars a gallon. This is actually something they feel will motivate their base. But in reality, the pro-life movement is so motivated on this and it doesn't take an election year. It doesn't take we have a few hundred thousand people show up in D.C. for the March for Life, whether it's an election year or not. 
pro-lifers are not actually motivated by politics. They use politics to actually achieve goals and aims at every level, whether it's local all the way up to the federal level. And the possibility of the overturning of Roe v. Wade is not some fluke or, you know, because it's 2022. It's the result of decades of hard work, prayer and effort on on the part of pro-lifers and also their children and their grandchildren. Often it's a generational type of a thing where an entire family has been struggling against abortion uh, over the course of decades. So talk to me about what you're seeing now that that everyone's talking about Roe v. Wade. What are black Americans saying about this? And, and has the positioning of black Americans changed since the last big case that was at the Supreme Court? So I would say there's it's twofold. There, people with the microphone are really saying like, that this is our time to be afraid, right? If they're going to give us a right and take back a right, what other rights are they going to take away? And this is so. In the, on the flip side of that, I feel like the you know the black community within itself is just really trying to grapple with the things you just said, like gas prices, you know, finding you know work, housing is a, is a affordable housing is a huge issue right now, um, and so it's almost a bit of fear-mongering, but the problem is, is that we we don't have a strong history in this country of supporting the Black experience. And so because of that, we have, like, we have to acknowledge when these things are being said. Like, I can't just brush past them and say, like, that's silly. Why would you say that? Because I'm like, well, I can, I totally can see why you would see why you would think that or why you would say that. Um, I really feel like right now the question is how, what are we going to do? Like, what are we going to do? What, are, what is the pro-life movement going to do? Because there, we have not, we are two laps behind. There are things that we could have put in place over the last 50 years that would have not made this so catastrophic to, to what other people see um, or what other people may feel. And, the problem with that is, is that now there's this, there's a lack of trust. There's a lack of belief. There's a lack of understanding of why, um, from a moral standpoint, people can understand why. Um, but from a standpoint of, uh, of someone's reality, how is this going to help? How is this going to help the poor black woman, you know, that can't afford another child? Like, what are we now? What are we going to now? What is she going to do? Right. And the reality is abortion was never the answer to that. It was never the answer to that. But it was a band-aid that was given for that. And so we are hyper-focused on these band-aids instead of going back upstream and saying, okay, well, why are they jumping in in the first place? Why, you know, why do you feel like this has to be a choice? Oh, because I just put my, you know, last baby is now starting kindergarten and I can finally go back to school, you know, and get the degree so that I'll be able to make more money. Okay, so the issue now we're talking about is childcare, because if she had a if she had affordable childcare or childcare, this wouldn't be an issue for her. But she's got the previous experience where childcare has been an issue, has been a financial hardship for her. Um, and so those are the things we have to we should have been looking at, but we really have to look at if we're going to be a country that says we are a country that values life, um, that values image bearers of God, like we have to figure out how, and that doesn't necessarily mean that's government. Um, I, I always say I don't necessarily believe that that's the government's place either, but as a community within itself, I do believe there is some uh, government responsibility, 
But I also believe that the responsibility belongs to our communities, our churches, our organizations to really begin to step in and figure out how are we building bridges um, that help women thrive and not just survive in these situations. So I have a couple of questions about what you've shared. First off, I want to be really clear about what you mentioned at the beginning of um, that bit there, that we don't have an acknowledgement of the Black experience. And I think for everyone, the Black experience, that term can mean, I mean, it can run the gamut of what it means. I'm Black, and I, I can think of at least five different things that the Black experience can mean. So for podcast listeners, so we're all on the same page, when you say that the Black experience has not been acknowledged, what are you referring to in, in relation to our discussion here about the pro-life movement? Yeah, so I, when I came in to this movement, like I said, I was hearing two things. And it was, you know, black women need abortion. Like on one side, that was very clear. And on the other side, it was like black abortion in the black community is killing off our our race. And but there was no acknowledgement of like why it's happening. So when I say the black experience, like in the black experience in terms of abortion how it was being portrayed, how like flags were being raised, weren't helping us get to the root of the problem. So I could see like people were saying this and people were saying this, but like what, okay, I just, now I just feel like we're just being used, like, because nobody's telling me like, okay, well, how do I solve that? Well, how do I solve that? And no one's telling anybody else. And so I'm talking about the black experience in terms of how we use Black women, when I say we, just whatever side you're on, use Black women as the, um, I don't want, not excuses in the word I'm looking for, but the reason why abortion should or shouldn't be legal and why, not legal, but why abortion should or shouldn't be outraged in the Black community, right? Like, what should, why the Black community should be responding in some type of way. And that's the part when I talk to like more, when I talk to my neighbor, like they don't, they're like, I don't understand like what, what the issue is. But when I talk to my more educated friends, my college professor friends, like they're the ones who are saying, I'm just tired of always being the thing that gets used. Okay. So the black experience as the, the primary, so the black community, black women are for the percentage rate you know, because I, I believe in acknowledging the realities that exist. And so black women have more abortions by percentage than any yep. other group of women in America. And so yep. the decimation of the black community, the impact of abortion on different segments of society, it has been most pronounced on black women and black the black community. We've had the largest loss of life. And that was actually intended because Planned Parenthood's original name was the Negro Project. It was a means by which a eugenicist, a rich white woman on the left, could eliminate an entire population of people. And she thought she, you know, kind of stumbled on the answer to not having black people around and also not having so many poor people and not having people who have, you know, physical ailments. So um, the thing that I think we as black women bristle at, and I, I include myself in that because I do get sick of people asking me if all three of my children have the same father or if, you know, my husband and I are married, you know, oh, you're married or they're really surprised when they see me shopping out in the suburbs and realize that I live here in the suburbs. I don't just drive out here to shop. I actually live out here. My kids went to private school 
you know, that kind of stuff. It's so shocking because what they're used to is poverty stricken black women or the caricatures of us that Hollywood continues to crank out in movie after movie and TV show after TV show. It's demeaning and it's a constant that you have to basically put up with. You, it never ends. No matter how old you get, no matter how much you accomplish, no matter how much you delineate yourself, you are always seen as a black woman, as someone who either you're super strong, like a calloused foot that's been exposed to too mm-hmm. much sun and weather, or um, you're someone who you made it. You know, you're like one of only 10 black women in America who's actually doing something with your life or, oh, you're married. You know, and then there's kind of this sense of shock and awe and almost like, you know, this this is just something I need to tell everybody I know about. And it never wears off. And the questions about your hair and the questions about why you would wear sunscreen because black people don't need it. I mean, there's a lot to put up with. But in the bigger scheme of things, there wouldn't be such a furor around the conversation if there weren't so many black people missing in America due to the use of abortion. And so when you were talking about childcare being the issue, I don't know if I agree with that um, because when I look at what's happening, so we can't, we can't ever get to a place as black Americans of faith, as Christians, where we leapfrog over the role that marriage plays. You do not need as much childcare for your children if you're married, because in a married household, at some point, you either decide, well, you know, our family is complete and we're not going to have any more children. And then if you have an, a surprise baby, you're still better able to weather it because you have a second person who's the primarily the income earner. And even in non-traditional families where the husband is not the primary income earner and the wife is, you still have a built-in layer of support from extended family on both sides as a married couple that you don't have as a single parent. So when we talk about child care and even, you know, saying the government has some responsibility, we're leapfrogging over the issue that black women have the lowest rate of marriage, but still continue to have the highest rate of unplanned pregnancy. So at some point in that thought process, we're skipping over how babies are made. If you're not having sex before you're married, there's a connection there. People who don't have sex before they're married don't have children out of wedlock. People who do have children out of wedlock, and then change the trajectory of their lives. So where does that part of the conversation fit into what you see, um, especially working in, you worked in a pregnancy resource center, so you work directly with the women, but now you're running ProBlackProLife.com, and you're also speaking out on a national stage about these issues. And so does, does marriage fall into the conversation? And if so, where? So for me, No, and that's not because I disagree with you. That's just because that's not the place where the Lord has put me. And so I'm married. I have eight children, two grandchildren. Um, And so I do believe that that does play a role. I wholeheartedly believe that plays a role. But what I, when I look at things, I, I have been looking at them from a standpoint of our numbers. And so I'm completely data driven. I'm a data snob. And if you're going to argue with me, that black women need abortion because of what you just said. We are disproportionately have more abortions than anyone else. And 70% of those women that, and I just looked it up and I want to say it was more than 70%. The number I just recently looked up of those women are single low income. Why, why are they, why are they making this decision? So part of that is why are they making the decision to have sex outside of wedlock? That's part of that. Another part of that is why are you making this decision if you're saying it's a for financial reasons, you're make, why are you making this decision? What decisions are you making that lead up to this point? That's what we focus on. 
So we do partner with organizations that deal with all the issues. Ours is just an organization that focuses on the education of abortion is not access. The lies, I would say that the lies that we have been told in the Black community, that abortion in our community is access. Like we're giving the Black community access because they can't get in a car and drive, you know, to the suburbs. So we're going to build a Planned Parenthood in your community because we're going to give you access. That's a lie. It's extermination. It's not access. Like, we're going to, you know, abortion is the answer. I just read an article, abortion is the answer to the maternal mortality rate in the black community. That's ridiculous. Because if we get rid of Roe, then then there'll be more black women forced to have babies, which means there'll be more black moms dying. So you mean to tell me that now the answer to that is abortion? That's not the answer. We need to fix our health care centers so no black women die. No women should be dying in America. This, those are the things that we focus on. Those are the messaging, the, the lies that we've been told. Um, we combat those with data and truth and realities from the numbers. And my stance, because I am a believer and I am Christian, I have my own moral stance. And so when we do partner with organizations, we want to partner with organizations that are going in the same direction. So I do wholeheartedly agree with you. It's just not what we do. Okay, so and and I can understand, you know, what you're what you're discussing there. Um, So I'm I'm what what I'm most concerned with when we're talking about the conversation. So conversation invariably leads to policy. And at some point, people will abandon certain modes of thinking or directions that they're pushing policy in, because they feel like it's not being received, the community that's being targeted is not receptive to it, or it's not having an impact. And I think it's a huge deception and lie from the pit of hell that black women can't get married and that marriage isn't important to black couples and that black men don't want to marry. The Mm -hmm. culture paints that picture and uh, abortion policy actually reinforces that picture. And so at every point that we have the opportunity to kind of highlight how marriage solves that problem, because there are a number of things along the abortion timeline that marriage solves. And so without marriage, then someone has to step in and take the role of that head of household, the husband. And in every case, we see government stepping into those roles. We we don't see the church. We don't see uh, NGOs and, you know, 501c3s and 4s. We see the government and the government is us. We fund the government with our tax dollars and whatever the policy is, even if we hate it, like Roe, it's still a, something that we support through the fact that we pay taxes. And so public policy uh, that carves out marriage and ignores it or treats it like an invisible kind of like um, it, it, something that's not a net good. When we see in other communities, it is not only a net good, it's like one of the hallmarks that you can actually predict the success of a child is whether or not their parents are married. And so there's a bit of elitism that uh, the left, the organized left, tried to attach to it. Um, and there are books about it, like The Bell Curve and um, some other books where, where they they go through and they track families um, where the parents are both college educated and they're married. And then they track families where the, the parents are both married to, you know, they're married, they may not have a college education. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic stratosphere a person falls into, a couple, they will do better if they're married and then maintain that marriage while they're raising the children. Even if the, the two parents who are coming into the marriage are you know, divorcees, so they bring children in and it's a blended family, you still end up with a better outcome through the marriage. And so, you know, the left and 
people who only think about politics want to attribute that to some kind of invisible, you know, white boogeyman, but it actually goes right to scripture where God talks about the blessings of being obedient. And so I, I would I would I would argue on behalf of just that, just the fact that God blesses obedience, that it's our duty as Christians to tell people when their behaviors fall outside of the line of obedience and how they can bring themselves into obedience and then be blessed. It does not mean we'll have a hundred percent, you know, all of a sudden every black woman in America will be married, but I think it would represent a huge shift in the way that people think about what they're doing because right now abortion is used as contraception. One and a half percent of the babies who are aborted are due to rape or incest. Health of the mother has almost disappeared, you know, except for cancer patients where sometimes they'll be pregnant when they discover the cancer and they can't have, um, you know, radiation or chemo until after the baby is born. With that tiny sliver of, you know, pregnancies that are involved in that, we, we're talking about the majority, over 97% of abortions are for contraception use. So they didn't take the pill. They didn't take precautions. They didn't just keep knees closed with the penny in between. They just had sex because that's what they wanted to do at the moment or that's what the man wanted to do at the moment. And then the abortion is the wiping away of the proof that they had sex with that one or that one or those ones. And so it becomes an issue of behavior following a lack of cogent policy surrounding marriage. Um, Do you think that any black organizations that work in this arena are willing to tackle that part of this equation? Because I I see it as the root cause of so much of the contraception related abortion in our country. Well, I feel like the biggest black organization that should be attacking that is the church. So when we go into the church, we typically tag on with it with ever singles ministry they have, marriage ministry they have, or youth ministry that they have. And so because they are trying to make the the connection for their members to understand why it's important to also have a pro-life conviction, um, that, that's typically where they kind of, I don't want to say put us, but where our curriculum and our training for churches comes in is that they'll have a singles ministry or they'll have a marriage ministry or they'll have a young adult ministry and we'll come in and they're doing, you know, the work necessarily to build, make sure they're building good relationships and good understanding. Um, but as far, I don't want to put anything out there on an organization that I is not true. I have one in mind, um, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. He, they do a lot of policy when it comes to family. Um, and understanding how to have civic engagement, and that's the AND campaign. They do a lot of, lot of work in that space, and even helping me understand what policies we need to, you know, work on and look at that actually um, uplift the family and family values. So now let's talk about, and it, I, you know, this this is the struggle is that it's difficult, and people aren't really receptive to hearing that part of the problem that they're experiencing is. You know, they're out engaging in behavior that is putting them in a position where they are having multiple abortions. And that is something that plagues black women. And, and you know, it's a part of this whole discussion. But um, I think, you know, you're you're highlighting how your organization intersects with this. And, th- and that brings us to um, the discussion about Roe v. Wade right now. And, of course, black women are back in you know the, the center of things with leftists saying poor black women need abortion. It's the only way they can claw their way out of poverty. And they're coupling that with behavior that is clearly illegal. 
protesting the Supreme Court justices in their home in an effort to intimidate them, people entering Catholic churches and vandalizing them, uh, the attempted firebombing of a uh, pregnancy resource center, people actually feeling like it's okay to enter a place of worship while parishioners are on their knees praying and dressed up as handmaid's tail and, you know, protesting the idea that Roe might be sent back to the States, which actually doesn't outlaw abortion, but they seem oblivious to that fact. So where where do you see us going between now and the actual announcement at the end of June? Because right now I, I feel like we're just a hair's breadth away of the same kind of protests we saw surrounding George Floyd, where activists set American cities on fire and did billions of dollars in property damage over an issue that we were all unified about. I, I, I still haven't come across a person who thought George Floyd's death was um, justified. Like everybody feels like that was just a horrible travesty, yet we still had to suffer all through all of the cities burning and all of that. And it was reckless and it was needless. So where do you see things going now? I think we're going to just see more of what we see now. Um, I think that there's going to be a group of people that is going to still, they're still going to see protests, they're still going to see marches. But I think that um, there, we don't have an answer yet. And I think what we're seeing is just intimidation. We're seeing um you know, trying to to get people to, you know, justices change their answer, change their position, rethink things. But also, it's a rallying cry, right? We're getting ready. I know Ohio, we just had our first set of primaries. We're getting ready to go into election season. I think that this is just going to be fuel for the fire. Um, and I think that if every if all parties, you know, aren't like engage, fully engaged and recognize that, you could see a huge change in things. Um, and so... That's what I've seen. I know where I live mostly is that um, we have not seen anything with our local pregnancy center. I haven't heard of anything locally. I've, I've heard of a lot of the things that you're talking about, um, but I'm really most of what I'm seeing is more political. Um, I have a board member who is at, um, a member of the Connecticut House, and she's being primaried. She wasn't. Um, she was. She won on special election. She's a pro-life Democrat, and she is being primaried by a Democrat who um, is basically using that against her. And um, so, we're it. It is the thing that people are going to use to try to turn mainly the Senate. But I do not believe that in general the Black community is a one-issue community. Um, I, I this is not. Um, a litmus test for them. And so I see I see more of an opportunity for those who are doing greater good, greater good in the community, have, you know, be- better policy, stronger policy on things that they actually need right now. Um, I see an opportunity for them to really to be able to come out and speak, speak about things that are actually happening in their life real time. Um, because I always say nobody really thinks about abortion until somebody's pregnant, not the average person. I think about it all the time. But the average person doesn't think about abortion as much as I do. Um, they think about their problems that they're having and they're struggling with right now. Yeah, um, I think I think the time that they think about it is, of course, then. But you also have um, you have this. I don't know how to describe it. It's this amazing um, ability for Democrats to make an issue that really has n- almost nothing to do with you and turn it into an issue that ha- has something to do with you by putting victimhood on a group and that group is usually black Americans. So I think you really elucidated that well and it gives us a lot more to think about and ways that we can become more cognizant of 
who exactly is involved in an issue and how we can better solve it. Um, I want to point people to your website again. I think it is a gorgeous website, and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. The website is Pro Black Pro Life. It's ProBlackProLife.com. I actually linked it in the show notes for today's podcast, and I can't wait to hear more from you. Um, your, your tagline is providing a 360-degree view around whole life issues in the black community. Fantastic to have you here today. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Stacey. I appreciate it. All right. That was Sharon Holloway. She's the founder of Pro Black Pro Life. You can find out more at ProBlackProLife.com. Don't forget to rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts and join us next time. Stacey Washington, StaceyOnTheRight.com. Also listen to my show every night on SiriusXM's Patriot Channel 125, 9 p.m. to midnight, Eastern Standard Time. God bless.